Blog Talk Radio. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. I'm your host, Lawrence Knorr, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press. Sunbury Press publishes print and electronic books under 10 different imprints in a variety of categories, sold worldwide wherever books are sold. This episode, we welcome author Donald Dewey. Donald Dewey has written some 40 books of fiction and nonfiction, as well as contributed scores of stories to magazines and other periodicals. He has also had some 30 plays staged in Europe and the United States. Donald's awards include those named after the Nelson Algren and the Actors Studio. Dewey is a widower with one son and lives in Jamaica, New York. At one point, he lived in Europe for 14 years, writing screenplays and working for the Italian news agency ANZA. Dewey is editor of the ASME award-winning magazine Attenzione and was editorial director of the East Network, overseeing a dozen flight magazines that PBS organ died. He has also been a theater critic for the WYC in New York and spends far too much time for his health watching the New York Mets. With Sunbury Press, Donald is the author of the Paul Finley mystery series, The Fantasy League Murders, Plus and Minus, Green Triangles, The Bolivian Sailor, Who's Killing the Brooklyn Dodgers, and Wake Up and Smell the Bees. Also, International Mysteries, Red Herrings, and The Man Who Hated History, and the baseball satire franchisement, all under our Milford House imprint. He also has a short story compilation, All the Aliens in the Neighborhood, and a memoir, Mosquitoes and Tortoises, under our Brown Posey Press imprint. Donald Dewey, that was a lot for me to say. Welcome. Yes, it was an awful lot. I didn't realize who wrote all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, wow. What a career. What a career. Well, I have to start with the baseball because the season's over now, and you and I go back and forth a lot about the Phillies and the Mets. Are you going to steal JT Real Muto from us? Oh, I'm I'm assuming that's already done. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. And who's going to own the Mets? Has that been decided? Oh yeah, yeah. Co- Cohen's already in charge. He's in okay. fact he he actually comes on as a kind of uh, if you can imagine a jovial Steinbrenner. He's clearly going to be the you know an Iron Man of sorts, but at the same time he spends his day tweeting all the time with fans. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, like there was just one yesterday where some fan wrote in and said, tweeted in and said, uh, "Do you think we can get Billy Joel to play at City Field this year?" And to which his answer was, "What position?" <laughs> so another New Yorker who tweets a lot, huh? Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but don't, no, 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 no. I, I refuse that comparison. No, no. no, no. <laughs> I thought I'd just put that in. I know how you feel about that. We'll try to stay away from politics. Yeah. All right. So, a uh, couple. I mean, you've written a lot. You have a lot with Sunbury Press. So, uh, uh, this is a first interview with you on on the BookSpeak Network here on the Sunbury Press Book Show. So, I wanted to cover uh, just a little bit about everything. We won't have time to go into a lot of depth, but. Tell me about the Paul Finley series. Somebody wanted to pick this up and get interested in it. What What is there for them? Uh, what is special about that is um, 
I actually was interested in the first one. The first one came out of I Belong, as everybody in America does. I belong to one of those baseball fantasy things. And and I was sitting there one season with somebody, and they said, do you ever write a thing about, you know, us? Like, who of us would be a murderer? And um, I thought, you know, you, you're a possibility. And I just started... <laughs> getting into it little by little and uh, I needed a character obviously but the character couldn't be um, on the one hand couldn't be one of those caricatures of um, you know Mickey Splain or anything like that he's he's a widower who lives with his father-in-law or as he says I don't know if, if your wife has died is, is your father-in-law still your father-in-law and there's that kind of uh, psychic separation between the two of them and he gets into one case after another and the main thing i'll tell you the truth Lawrence, the main thing i wanted to do with all of these was that even though the protagonist is this male uh 40-ish guy um the women characters in almost every book are the strongest ones and um and i felt very gratified by the fact that the women who have read these books uh, say the same thing so uh I figure, okay, so that's successful in that sense anyway. Uh, there are various mysteries. Uh, they're all set in and around New York um, City, except one which takes place up in uh, New York State near the Canadian border. So, I enjoyed doing the covers for those, especially the last one, Wake Up and Smell the Bees. Oh, some of those yeah. covers, you know, they're great. They really are, uh, and I congratulate you for that. I mean, and I think I already have, but uh, take it twice, you know. Um, they, <laughs> Sorry. They are, they are really nice, the covers, very much so. And then, they, you know, your international mysteries, this, I'm guessing uh, you draw a lot from your career, your the time when you lived in Europe, and some of the things that you've done. I really like... Uh, the Man Who Hated History from a title and a cover perspective, uh, also the book itself, and then Red Herrings. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your your Man international flair. I lived in Europe for a little more than 14 years. Most of it was in Rome, but I also lived in Copenhagen and Paris and Dublin. And um, the man who hated history, to me, uh, I must confess, that to me is my favorite. A, because uh, it called on me to do more. The uh, the narrative voice in it is of a French policeman from Rouen. And, uh, you know, instead of just sitting there and talking about somebody from Brooklyn, that required a little bigger jump imaginatively than some of the other things I did. And fortunately, I have several friends in France. And after it was finished and before I showed it to anybody, I made sure to send them a copy. And I said, did I really, you know, do anything stupid here? And um, and they fortunately, again, said, no, you didn't. Uh, this could have been written by a Frenchman. And that, again, was, you know, like these little compliments you get here and there. I can't tell you how how much better they are than uh, even sometimes, you know, I'll take the award money, but even more than the prestigious awards. One of, one of the nicest things that ever happened to me, for instance, was one day there's a 
boom, boom, boom at my front door, and I open it, and there's this huge package. And inside is this collection of drawings, uh, kitty drawings. And what it was was that I had written years ago, I wrote a book about bears, the animal, and there's a chapter on the mythology of bears, the legends of bears and you know all, all and and also all of the zoological things and what this package was was this kindergarten class in California uh the teacher had them all looking at the book and then drawing their impressions from the book and these were all the drawings from the kids i can't tell you this to me you know was my nobel prize wow. Yeah, I, it, it, it was just wonderful, and and every once in a while, when you something like that happens, you kind of realize that oh, you maybe you have gotten through to somebody, you know. Yeah, yeah, I that that would be pretty telling. I, I guess with a novel, you don't have people uh, out there uh, copycatting your your plots. Thank God. No, not not <laughs> quite. Um, but kids drawing pictures that's of uh, of bears. That's great. Yeah, Great. it really was. Um but in in also, you know, you get these um I mean, I've I've had evenings where somebody's just said something offhandedly and um uh, they never, you know, say to you directly, I liked your book, I didn't like your book. But they'll say something that made it clear that they did like it even though, you know, they didn't want to compliment you directly. And so every once in a while, you've got to cling to those things because you're not making money and you're certainly not getting great fame. So you've got to cling to these things for satisfaction. So tell us a little bit about all the aliens in the neighborhood. I believe those were short stories. How, how much of that was nonfiction versus fiction? Uh, how much of that was nonfiction? Um, Maybe you can't say. I don't think anybody could ever say, and only in the sense that anybody who writes fiction, you know, I mean, if they claim that, oh, this has nothing to do with me, uh, they're lying. You know, everything, that every piece of fiction has something to do with you. I am, to a large extent, even, you know, Paul Finley in the, in the Finley Mysteries. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there, which is me. I recognize me. Uh, you're not writing about your neighbor. You're not writing about... Um, you know, you're the guy upstairs. It's what, what in another field, uh, Marcello Mastriani, the Italian actor, once said. He said, "Of course, every character I do is me. Uh, who else am I going? Who else you think I am? Am I the guy? Am I the butcher across the street? No, I am me, uh, and I just have to get enough uh, variations and plumb enough of my uh, possibilities." to make the character interesting. In fact, I, I just saw recently another uh, example of that was Spencer Tracy once saw Laurence Olivier doing a play, and Olivier did as he usually did, covered himself up with all kinds of uh, goo and makeup and wigs and things. And Tracy went backstage afterward, and he said, that was wonderful, Larry, but you've got to explain one thing to me. Why do you put all that stuff on? People know it's you. Uh, and there's that, there is always that sense of, um, personal truth in everything you do. And if you try to get away from it, and God knows I've tried more than once, tried to write things which, you know, 
somehow had nothing to do with me, well, you know, you get to about page 40 and you throw it away uh, because it just can't be done. Yeah. Well, Mosquitoes and Tortoises was a memoir and had some pretty uh, pretty exciting stuff in it. Maybe you could touch on a couple things to tease the audience uh, that might get them to pick it up. Mosquitoes, yeah, Mosquitoes, it's, it's about, uh, as I think I explained in the foreword, you know, most, most kids when they're growing up, they, they say things like, I want to be a marine biologist, something like that. Well, I always knew I, somewhere that I was going to be involved in the media in one shape or form. And part, I'll tell you the truth, part of this was the responsibility of Danny Berrigan, the Jesuit who died recently, who was known for his anti-war activism. And Danny was one of my teachers when I was in high school. And he called me up to the classroom one day and he said, I want you to forget the curriculum here. Here's a list of books. I want them all read by the end of the term. And from that kind of encouragement, I was going on, and I was writing. I was be writing things for my brother. I mean, I, when I was in my teens, my brother was three years younger, and after school, I'd be writing mysteries, and I'd be writing chapters and showing them to him, and he'd be saying things about them, and I'd go back into my bedroom, and I'd write another chapter. So the writing game was not alien to me. Um, what mosquitoes and tortoises is about is about how i ended up in one shape or form in on the fringes of various kinds of i i have had radio shows i've done plays i've worked in the movies and they're about various adventures that i've had in all of these things Um, none of which brought me great fame but all of which somehow kept me plugged in i mean i was then i was with the actor studio for a while um, so I think there's there's a lot of funny things in, in these stories. And some of them have big names. You know, you can read about Paul Newman, you can read about uh Orson Welles. They're they're all they're all stories here which have not been told elsewhere. So did you ever get your fifteen minutes of fame? Uh yeah, I think I did. Um I, one year I won the Nelson Algren Prize, and I and I got a lot of publicity for that. Um, where, where else have I had my 15 minutes of fame? Um, yeah, I think now because you know by now you, you, when you're you're 120 years old, something should accrue to you, you know, and <laughs> so that uh, people have called up in the last couple of years, especially. I am, for instance, a voice on uh, collaborator with the Criterion uh, DVD collection. Uh, I do a lot of talking heads things for them. Um, part, this is partly a result of uh, biographies I've written. I've written biographies of Mastriani, Jimmy Stewart, uh, Lee J. Cobb, uh, and people like that. So when they have these films, which they're going to put in the DVD collection, they want me there as a talking head, and certainly I am not going to say no, you know? Right. Well, I have to ask you about Jimmy Stewart. I had forgotten you you did that biography. Uh, what did you think of Jimmy Stewart when you were writing this biography? I, I, I'm i kind of partial to Jimmy Stewart because he's from Pennsylvania, so so be kind. Correct. <laughs> Correct. 
No, I, what I was always struck by, by Jimmy's, I never understood, probably because I'm not that old, but uh, my first impression of Jimmy Stewart was not uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or It's a Wonderful Life. My first impression of Jimmy Stewart was that nasty son of a bitch who, who was in all those westerns of Anthony Mann. I mean, he was a vengeful character. And um, I always thought, my God, you know, like this is the guy that, you know, did Mr. Smith and this is the guy who did all those comedies. His range as an actor absolutely knocked me out when I finally sat down and just watched all this stuff. And what I was absolutely uh, delighted by was in doing the book, I talked to a lot of actor studio people who I knew at that point, like Shelley Winters, Ben Gazzara, all of them had worked with him at one time or another. And they all said the same thing. They said, look, I, we do not understand. Yes, uh, Cooper and all those people were great, but Stewart was by far the best actor. And I, I think you see that. And, and there are so many different Jimmy Stewart's. Uh, the uh, the guy who works for uh, worked for Hitchcock was this real coal manipulator, mm-hmm. and uh, and Hitchcock himself was the first to acknowledge that. He would say, whenever I want a character who I think of as my dream person, I hire Cary Grant. When I want a person I think of as being close to me, I hire Jimmy Stewart. Uh, and you see this in, in its various pictures, whether it's Rope or uh, the man who, uh, man who knew too much. Uh, he's really, really a cold little bastard. He really is in many of these pictures. And then you get the, then you get the heated, vengeful guy in the Westerns, uh, you know, Bend of the River and things like that. Um, and he was very, very, uh, what can I say? Uh, he had an ability just that uh, none of the other actors had. And uh, the other thing, which was very striking, and, and everybody, I think, is aware of it. They just maybe have not tuned in on it. As opposed to all of those uh, movies where, you know, the Coopers and the Gables and all those people go, yep, yep, yep. Jimmy Stewart, Every single picture he did had a monologue that never ended. He talked and he talked and he talked, and he loved it. I don't want your money, Mister Potter. Yeah, I know. Right, right. Yeah, uh, and and why he loved it so much was because this, as he said, you know, this was my kind of like internal uh, metronome because I could start a speech. And I wouldn't be sure who this character was, but by the time I got to the second paragraph, I knew who he was. And that's why he delighted in monologues. Uh, but I'll tell you the truth, most actors do, because, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, you know, the, not only because they can shine by themselves, but also because they really don't have to relate to anybody else, right? <laughs> they can just talk about themselves. I was also uh, but, struck by his World War II service. I mean, he was a legit Air Force guy in World War II. He wasn't just oh, somebody. He, yeah. Oh, he had 25. Uh, I Speaking when I was doing this, I was, I was speaking to many generals who were his commanders and things. And one of them said to me, he said, the day that I realized how good he was was the day he was in, he was in command 
of 1,000 planes wow. flying into Germany in command. He said they got across the channel, and he realized the weather was so bad that he ordered the, the whole mission aborted. He said, somebody with that kind of confidence is somebody I want in charge. And the good thing about that was he was the only one, the only actor who after, you know, years later when they were making all these war pictures, the Midways and the Tora Tora Tours and all those things, Stuart always refused. He never showed up in those movies because mm-hmm. he said they, they never, never get it right. And I won't be part of it. And uh, so, you know, oh, he was very legitimate. Twenty-five, yes, it was twenty-five missions. Yeah, he's luck. We're lucky that he came came back after all that. Well, I want to mention another book. Uh, we have about eight minutes or so to go. Of course, Franchisement, I think, was your most recent release. This interesting baseball book. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, Franchisement start. I mean, it really started off as a goof. Um, I was struck one time by all these people talking to me about, uh, you know, uh, horoscopes and all of that kind of thing. And I thought, you know, you could use any category at all to kind of like classify people. Uh, so I had this so I had this imaginary scene of this uh, character, uh, Alan Gibb. He was he, he's the primary fiction piece. Alan Gibb was a professor of omative languages. Amative languages. What are amative languages? They're languages with, that you don't talk. You, you omit any kind of speech at all. Uh, a classic case would be somebody like Erin Burnett on CNN. Uh, she does this show in the evening, and she asks this question, and they keep the camera on her, and her expression says the same thing all the time. God, I've heard this BS so many times. Okay, but she doesn't say it. Okay, amative language is when, is when you're just listening to people and you're saying, I wish he'd shut up. Um, and so Alan Gibb was an expert in amative languages, but he was looking for something different. So he, one day he went down to the bus stop on West 76th Street in New York, and there's a little boy, and the little boy has a Yankee cap on, and he has a Red Sox shirt on, and he has Mets shoes, sneakers on. And he says, now there's a little boy who's being torn in so many different ways. He's got, you know, the Yankee arrogance. He's got the Red Sox whining. And he's got those delusions of a Mets fan. And so he decided to start classifying people by their baseball team. And, and little by little, he's, he's, he worked out this entire theory, which he called franchisement, which was his way of having, helping people get over their de- sense of defranchisement in life. Uh, and the book is kind of like, let's just say, it's a narrative. It's a narrative satire of Alan Gibbs' success in doing this. Um, and it, it involves a whole lot of life from the time he was a child until the time he's an old man sitting there eating his lifesavers. Um and so the book, I think, is, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, I hope, you you know, I'm saying it's kind of funny because I'm making an attempt here to be humble. But it, I think it's hilarious. Uh, and so far, the people who have read it seem to think so, too. So no complaints so far for franchisement, except we're going to uh-huh. get more readers. <laughs> 
No, it's definitely very funny. I think I think it needs some explanation and some context. I think we got to figure out how to how to do that a little better because um, it has a deeper meaning to it, and you know it's hard to get past that or get to that and to hook people on it. But maybe we get some if we can get some more people talking about it. That would That's really help. Always a good start. Absolutely, always yeah. a good start. So uh, we got about five minutes. Uh, believe it or not, this time has flown. What are you working on now? What's What's next for Donald Dewey? I've got uh, several things actually. I've got. Um, I'm I'm about I'm about I'd say three weeks away from finishing another Finley book. Um, but I've also got a couple of uh, nonfiction things. Um, one is a collection of uh, one I call actually the working title is uh, Vita Longa Ars Breve, movies that come off the screen, uh, personal experiences in a the movie theater, and how some films have stayed with people and have had personal effects on people. Um, it's a series of essays. It, it probably, in sense of category, it, it would probably be uh, a partner of uh, mosquitoes and tortoises in a way. Um, and I've also got a major, major uh, baseball history book, actually. Uh, but I, it's oh yeah, not, it's, yeah, oh yeah. But it now you got my interest. <laughs> oh, I know it, but Lawrence, it needs, it has to be promoted big. Okay, it's really, really big. It's in fact, uh, I thought. Well, you two know that we from- we had the third 1932 Yankees book do very well, and uh, our Lou Gehrig book has done exceptionally well, and we've gotten some good publicity, especially around the New York metro area for those. Well, let me just tease you this way. Um, Two people from Sabre read it and said, nobody's ever said this before. And, um, well, you you're know, speaking I, to another Sabre member, so I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, yeah, it takes, it, it takes the oldest, the, the working, the title of it. In fact, it's not the working title. The, the book doesn't go anywhere without this title. It's called the national pastime of innocence, ball mythology. Hmm. Uh, and it's about exactly not. It's obviously not about the the double day myth because that we already know. But it's about why him. And I know John Thorne said to me, he said I never read anything like this before. I said I know. That's the whole hmm. point, John. Uh, Very but interesting. I, 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 I don't, I, I, Lawrence, I'll tell you, frankly, I, I don't just want to throw it out there. I want this to get primary attention. I think every author would like that, but I think something, a baseball book like that, uh, could certainly capture a baseball audience, if not a general audience. Well, uh, that's the other, that's the other thing. And, and both of them said that it's not just a baseball book. It's also an Americana book. Right. You know, in, ter- in, in terms of niches. Well, that, that period in American history is also very interesting, that post-Civil War era. Exactly. The, yeah. the, most, the Gilded Age and the so-called Progressive Age are by far, to me, the most uh, consequential eras in this country. That, that, they decided everything, basically. You know, when I was looking at your uh, 
your biography that I was going to read, I, I saw Jamaica, New York, and I thought, oh, wow, I was in Jamaica, New York, two years ago, went to the graveyard uh, where Rufus King is buried and to the Rufus King homestead. And mm-hmm. I didn't think, didn't think to look up Donald Dewey when I was there. I just didn't connect it. But uh, next time. Well, next, next time, next time. Next Absolutely. time. I'll, I'll convince you to publish that baseball book through us. <laughs> well, we're just about out of time, so I'll say farewell. Donald, it's been great having you. Okay. I hope we had a, an interesting talk for your listeners. And we'll have you back. Uh, there's a lot a lot to dig into here, and certainly as something new comes out. And we got to get into this franchisement as well, especially as baseball season comes back. I would – yeah, and uh, listen, I'll, I'll – I'll send you. I'll send you the uh, nonfiction book. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you. Uh, and uh, and we'll we'll go from there. All right. Take care. You too. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Be sure to check out our books at www.sunburypress.com, or search for our titles on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and other booksellers worldwide. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are hundreds more available on the BookSpeak Network. You can find our channel on blogtalkradio.com. Thank you for listening.